questions I was wrestling with this week, and a great question I think for us, us to all think about, is how do you know God's will for your life? I mean, you think about it, like, how do you know God's will for your life? Like, God's will being what God wants you to do, maybe where God wants you to go, how God wants you to serve. Like, this is an important question for many of us to wrestle with. What does God want for my life? What is God's will? Now, to understand that idea, what is God's will for my life, we have to have the right foundation, the right premise in the first place for us to be able to identify what that is. Let me explain it this way. Uh, think back. Uh, if you're a parent, think back to having teenagers. Or if you're a teenager, if you're an adult, think back to when you were a teenager, okay? The best way I can explain this is, is teenagers were their bedroom, right? Because what happens with parents, and you've got teenagers, their bedroom is always super clean, right? No, that's not the case. Their bedrooms are always a mess. And I remember, uh, here's, here's my story. Uh, when I was younger, uh, Again, I was at high school age, somewhere around there. I remember my mom came in to my room one day, and she said, Kevin, this room is disgusting. I'm like, it's not that bad. Now, there might have been, like I was a wrestler, so I might have had a bunch of my workout clothes on the floor, and my clean clothes were mixed into it because teenage boys, they're all the same, right? They're all just the same. They're just clothes that you wear, regardless of what they smell like. Um, there might have been some dishes uh, someplace in the room, uh, there might have been tons and tons of stuff, uh, flow, debris just coming out of my, underneath my bed in my closet. There might have been some kitchen utensils included in that, but just stuff flowing out of, of everywhere. Um, that room, it, it prob- I'm going to be honest, it smelled like a wet dog that had been dead for a week and got sprayed by a skunk, right? That was just a teenage boy's room. And my mom comes in and she's, Kevin, this room is disgusting. You got to clean it. I remember me being so bright because I'm a teenager and I know everything. I said, Mom, this is my room. This is my room. I don't have to clean my room. I'm like, look at the door. On the door, it says my name. I put the little sign that says Kevin's room. It says Kevin's room. It's my room. I decide what happens in my room. Any, anybody have this conversation with your, your teenagers? No? Yeah, yeah. I remember my mom said, she said, you think this is your room? He said, this is my house. I give you a room to use. I give you this room, but it's not yours. It's mine. Now clean your room. And of course, I did what every teenager did. I rolled my eye and I said, whatever, whatever. (laughs) Teenagers, the whole premise, their whole foundation is wrong. The idea is this is my room. The room wasn't theirs. The room was given to them by their parents. They were stewards of that room, but their room was never theirs in the first place. Now, what's interesting, and here's our connection, in terms of of our lives, especially as we begin to think about what it looks like for us to follow God's will, we often view our lives kind of like the teenagers view their bedrooms, right? Oh, my life, it's, it's mine. It's my life. It's my family, it's my time, it's my schedule, it's my money, it's my gifts, it's my talents, it's my career, it's mine. I can do what I want with it. We begin to think about God's will in terms of ourselves, in terms of our family and friends and people around us. We're like, oh, God, you can give me some suggestions as to what you want me to do with my life. 
You can give me some suggestions if you want, and I will review those suggestions. And when you give me those suggestions, God, I'm going to run those by my friends to see what they think about it. And then I'm going to uh, uh, run what you suggest through my matrix of my life, of what I want, what I think is realistic. And then, God, then I'm going to make some revisions to what you suggest. And then we'll negotiate. Right? Isn't that kind of the way that we view like, like life and God's will? God, you can have some suggestions but I'm going to take that and figure out, does that fit in with what I want, with my life, with my desires? And see, the whole premise, the whole foundation that our life is ours, that we own it, is flawed in the very beginning. The foundation is completely wrong. Because in actuality, our lives and all that we possess are granted and given to us by God. Colossians 1.16 says, everything was created by him on heaven and on earth, and all things were created through him and for him. You know what that means? We don't own the bedroom, right? Our lives are not our own. They've been given to us by God. We are stewards of what he's given us. We steward what he has given us, but our lives are not about us. And what we want and what we want to do, they're about him and his glory. And this is so significant for us to grasp as we wrestle with this question on how do we know God's will for our lives? Now, the majority of this past year, we have spent actually 38 weeks studying the book of Acts. And guess what? We've got eight chapters left, and we're going to burn and turn as quick as we can through those eight chapters. Uh, I'm excited for it. Today we're in uh, Acts chapter 21, and Acts chapter 21 is a bit of a transition. Uh, Paul's third missionary journey is coming to an end. Uh, God has, has spoken to Paul and said, Paul, uh, my will for you, what I want for you is I want you to go to Jerusalem. God's been leading Paul for a while to go to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 20, we said these here uh, a month or so ago, Paul says in, in chapter 20, verse 22, he said, Now I am compelled by the Spirit on going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul is pretty clear. Like, God's will for me is I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And with that, God's will for me is there's going to be persecution and hardship and suffering. I'm going to face some, some difficult things. But I love it because, because Paul understands this is God's will for me, but then he follows that up in verse 24. Acts 20, uh, verse 24 says, But I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself. If only, if only I could finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God, you want me to go to Jerusalem? You want me to suffer? Man, that doesn't sound very fun, but ultimately, God, your will be done, not mine. And so our text today, chapter 21, Paul is going to Jerusalem. And while he gets there, he's going to meet some friends. He's going to meet some Christians that say, Paul, we have some different advice for you. We don't think it's wise for you to go to Jerusalem. We don't want you to risk your life. And I think that's a little bit of our question this morning. How do we discern God's will when it's dangerous, 
when it's risky, when it doesn't make sense from a worldly standpoint, when it doesn't make sense to our friends, when others think it is unwise? How do we discern God's will then? And maybe the bigger question is, who owns the bedroom? Is our life, is it really our own to run? Do we choose what's easy and comfortable and what makes sense to us? Or do we belong to God? Do we belong to God? Are our lives to be used by God for his glory and not our own? That's what we're looking at today. Acts chapter 21, starting verse 20. Excuse me, why am I saying 20? We're starting in verse 1. Chapter 21 starts with the verse 1. It says, When we departed from the church at Ephesus, and we set sail, we came on a straight course to Kos, and the next day we went to Rhodes, and there we went to Patera. And then we found a ship that was crossing to Phoenicia, and we went aboard and we set sail. Verse 3, When we came to the site of Cyprus, we leaving it, and we left and we sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre. For there the ship and loaded the cargo. And having sought out uh, the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Paul, he's got some friends or his traveling companions with him, and they're going on the way to Jerusalem. They want to be there for Pentecost, and they all these different things. They travel about 400 miles on, on ships, and they land in the city of, of Tyre, which was a major, uh, a major port in that day. And so the ship that they were on is going to take a week to unload stuff, and so what do Paul and his companions do? Hey, we're going to go find some Christians. We're going to go find the church. We're going to go find some other Christians. We're going to encourage them. We're going to be encouraged by them ourselves. Again, one of those things, when we're living the Christian life, man, you need the people of God around you, right? Paul lands, and he's like, hey, we've got to find the people of God. And in seven days, they have such a rapport. They have such a connection. He spends seven days with these people. They're very connected. And look what, they, look what happens in verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'm a little bit confused, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're smarter than me, but I'm like, hold on, hold on. Uh, Paul just said that the Spirit compelled him to go to Jerusalem. Like, that sounds like the will of God. The will of God, you go to Jerusalem. But then we got these Christians in Tyre, and they're like, it says, through the Spirit. They were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Like, like, is, is that confusing to anybody? Like, like, which one of these is the will of God? Is it go to Jerusalem? Is it not to go to Jerusalem? I don't understand what's going on. Why are these, these, these different things? The question is, who's following the Spirit? Is it Paul or these Christians? I mean, honestly, like, like if we're in Tyre, we're those Christians, like, it would make sense for us to say this, right? Because we have this mantra in our society, and again, if life is all about me, man, we don't want to suffer. Oh, suffering, no, suffering can never be the will of God. So if you are talking about going to Jerusalem and suffering, oh, there's no way, Paul. There's no way that's what God wants for you, right? That's logic. That's our worldly wisdom. That's what the world would say. But here's my understanding of this text. In chapter 20, the Holy Spirit told Paul two things. Holy Spirit said, number one, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to proclaim the gospel. That's number one. Number two, the Holy Spirit told Paul, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to face persecution, hardship, suffering, all of those things, right? One and two, go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. And I think here in Tyre, these Christians, I think the Spirit came and told them, number two, Paul's going to suffer. 
There's going to be some, some persecution, some suffering that Paul's going to go through. And I think the disciples are saying, hey, hey, like, Paul, we love you. Paul, we care about you. Paul, we want you to continue to do fruitful ministry among us. So, Paul, if you're going to suffer, there's no way that can be the will of God. So since the Spirit told us you're going to suffer, we're going to conclude, hey, that cannot be God's will for you. Don't go to Jerusalem. And again, this is where we ask that question. Who owns the bedroom? Who owns the bedroom? Because if we own our lives and we get to dictate what we do in life and, and what is successful, is about, if it's about us and what we want, then of course it makes sense. Paul, we don't want you to suffer. Paul, we want you to remain with us. We want you to continue to minister to us. We want you to continue to teach us. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't, don't face that. It'd be easy for us to choose what's easy and comfortable, what makes sense according to human logic and human wisdom. Can you imagine the, the pressure that Paul would have felt? But Paul's got plans in place. He's got travel plans in place. So it says in verse 5 that at, when their days there had ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they, these Christians with their wives and the children, they accompanied us until we're outside the city. And kneeling down, they prayed and they said farewell. And we boarded the ship and they returned home. They're like, all right, Paul, you're committed. We're going to pray for you and bless you as you go on your way. Verse 7, we finished our voyage from Tyre and arrived in, in Ptolemaic. Uh, we greeted the brothers and we stayed with them for a day. Verse 8, the next day we came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Verse 9, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, I will say we've got a lot of cut to cover in this text, so I'm just going to barely touch on this because I... Don't have time to get into it. But one of the things we see throughout Scripture, specifically in the book of Acts, is you see these little nuggets where, where Luke includes things like this. Hey, these got these four unmarried daughters who are prophesying. And it's showing us how the gospel, it transcends our cultural differences. I mean, in the gospel, in, in, in the church, you know, there are gender differences and race differences and economic differences, but in the church, we're all equals. We're all equals. We all have an equal value that we bring to the body of Christ. And so I love this. This is Luke saying, hey, these unmarried women, they have just as much value and need in the church as anybody else. That was a rabbit trail. Verse 10 says, while we were staying there many days, a prophet named Agabus, he came down to, uh, from Judea. We actually ha have read about Agabus a couple chapters ago in Acts chapter 11. He's a guy who's got a flair for the dramatic. And so it says uh, in verse 11 that he took Paul's belt took a, and he bound his own hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, this, this prophet comes and he's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take Paul's belt. I'm bounding my hands and feet and I'm telling everybody this is what's going to happen to Paul. He's going to be bound and given over to the Gentiles. And all the people there, what's their response? Verse 12, when they heard this, we and the people urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The we here is Luke. He's writing the book. And so all of Paul's traveling companions, all his best friends that are with him, as well as the people that are in the city that they're staying in, they all urged Paul, hey man, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't face the persecution. 
Don't go. Again, can you just imagine the pressure that Paul's under? I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Like God had spoken very clearly to Paul. Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, I mean, he surrendered. He's like, God, hey, I don't count my life as value. You want me to go? God, I'm yours. Your will be done, not my will. But now he's got these well-meaning friends, people who love him, who care about him, people who, and let me clarify, these are people who love Jesus. These are people who have the Holy Spirit in them, and they're saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. It cannot be God's will. If you're Paul, are you confused? Man, what am I supposed to do? God says this, and my friends say that. Are you fearful to know what decision to make? Let me ask you this. In terms of your life, when you're trying to make decisions about, God, are you leading me this way or that way? What is, what is your tendency? Are you one of those people that uh, you are quick to agree with the advice of others? You call your friend and they're like, hey, I think this is what you do. And you're like, oh yeah, totally. My friend said to do it. I'm going to do it. Is that your tendency? Or is your tendency to be somebody who is quick to ignore the advice of others and just Oh, I feel God leading me to do this. I'm just going to do this. What's your tendency? Or maybe your tendency is to just be frozen in fear. Man, I don't don't know. Like, Like, I felt God saying this, and my friends are saying this, and now I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to make a decision at all, and I'm just frozen in fear. What's your tendency in that situation? Paul's response is actually really significant for us because he's not flippant or arrogant towards his friends. He's not like, forget you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says, what are you doing? You are weeping and breaking my heart. He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. He says, man, this is difficult for me. I feel your love. I feel your concern. It's pressing on me. I'm taking it in consideration. But, verse 13, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, listen, guys, I feel your concern deeply. I'm not dismissing it. But ultimately, I want to be consistent with what God is asking me to do. It's not my will. It's God's will be done. And I want to just pause for a second. I want to, I want to ask the question, like, you've got these Christians. You've got the friends of Paul. Like, why would they try and convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem? I mean, like, like, these guys are Christians. They love Jesus. They've got the Holy Spirit in them. They, they love Paul. Like, why would they encourage him not to go? And I think this is why. Sometimes, even well-meaning Christians, we try to make a God's will conform to our own preconceptions, our own wisdom. We say, God, this is what you want, but I'm going to try and make that fit into my context of my understanding. You know what it comes down to? Same question we started with today. Who owns the bedroom? Paul, if you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to suffer, man, if I own the bedroom, that doesn't make any sense for you to do that. That cannot be God's will. 
Like, can we acknowledge that when we're trying to understand God's will in light of our own wisdom, our own logic, can we acknowledge that oftentimes our decisions are marked by self-interest? By what we think? By what we feel? How many decisions we make or how many times do we give advice to other people based on our own wisdom, our own interest, what we think is in the best interest of the other person? Oh, here's what I think you should do. This makes most sense to me. Whose bedroom is it? Is it yours or God's? Our purpose is not to glorify ourselves. Our purpose is not to live on easy street. Our purpose is to have our lives that glorify God. And I think this is the problem. Is we make God's guidance conditional on our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own desire, our own happiness, our own sense of completeness. We say, God, this is what you want for me, but because I own the bedroom, I'm going to choose what works. And again, the whole foundation is flawed. The whole premise is flawed. We don't own the bedroom. We're not called to live lives for Jesus because we enjoy it. We do it because it's God's will. We're not called to share the gospel with other people because it's fun. No, we're called to do it because that's what God wants us to do. We don't serve the church because we find it fulfilling, because we have some extra time. No, we serve the church because God has called us to serve. This is where we've got to understand who owns the bedroom. So often when we look at our life and we're trying to figure out, God, what do you want us to be? We have this horizontal view about us and what we want, and we need to shift and have this, this vertical view. It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants, and I'm going to direct my gaze to him. God, what is it you want for me? Not what do I want, but we've got to have this, this vertical view towards God. God, what is it you have for me? Verse 14, it says, Since he could not be persuaded, we, the people, we ceased, and we said, Lord, let the, Lord, the, the, let the will of the Lord be done. Let me ask you that. He says, let the will of the Lord be done. Is that said in frustration or conviction? <sighs> All right, whatever. Let the will of the Lord be done. Or is it, man, yeah, let the will of the Lord. I think it's probably said in both. They probably had both those emotions. All right, Paul, you're not listening to us. You feel, all right, Paul, we're going to pray that Lord, the will of the Lord be done. What's great is over the next couple of weeks as we finish the book of Acts, because Paul knew who owned the bedroom, because he was willing to be obedient to God's will, even when it didn't make sense to his friends, even when it didn't make sense from the world's logic, when he said, God, thy will be done, not mine, we're going to see Paul go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. Eventually, he's going to die as a martyr. But you know what? He accomplished what God asked him to do because he's going to have the opportunity to testify to the gospel amongst authorities and rulers and governors and kings from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Yeah, he accomplished what God has set out before him. Listen, this morning as we ask that question, as we seek God's will for our life, 
Again, this is one of the significant questions that we, each of us, are going to wrestle with in our life. God, what do you have for me? The foundation, the first step to us discerning God's will, to understanding what God has for us, is to know who owns the bedroom. The foundation for us discerning God's will is to recognize that our lives belong to God. And our desire should be to glorify God with our lives, not to glorify our own self-interest. In fact, first Sunday of the new year, right? 2024, we're talking about, many of us are making resolutions. We've, we've got goals for the year. Do you know what God's will is for you this year? Have you stopped to say, God, what is it you want for me this year? God, what are you asking me to do? God, what are you asking me to make a priority in in this year? God, what are the big decisions that you want from me this year? God, what is it you want for me? What is your will? And again, we can all start thinking about, man, I don't know what it is. Let me think about it. We start thinking about our, our, our relationships. start thinking about our families. We start thinking about our careers. We start thinking about maybe that, that, that lingering sin that we haven't been able to get rid of. We can think about the, the bitterness and the anger that we're holding on to. We think about the control that we're trying to continue to grasp onto as if we can't let go. We're thinking about the church and how God's calling us. Man, are we just to be a consumer? Or are we to be committed to the mission of the church? What is God's will for you this year? I believe that God has amazing things in store for us. The question is, are you willing to step into what God is asking of you? And maybe the bigger question, not just are you willing to step into it. Maybe the bigger question is if if this morning, if it was just you and me, it wasn't the whole church, just you and me, we're sitting over coffee. If I were to ask you this question, how would you answer it? Who owns a bedroom? Who owns your bedroom? Is your life your own? Is it your life and your money and your schedule and your kids and your career and your future and your retirement? Is it yours or is it God's? Because we will never figure out what God has for us if we continue to say, this is mine. And I'm going to make whatever makes sense to me. Again, the philosophy of the world is marked by we live for ourselves. It's marked by self-interest. And let's be honest, how much of that has crept into the church? God speaks. God, this is what I want. God says, this is what I have for you. And we begin to think, well, God, I reserve the right to decide if that makes sense for me in my life right now. I reserve the right to decide this is, if this is my plan, if this makes sense to me. This is why this is so significant for us to actually think about that question. Who owns the bedroom? And maybe this morning we need to be reminded that our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are stewards of what God has given us to bring him glory. I'll be honest, it's pretty scary, right? It's scary 
to give up ownership. It is scary for us to lay down our lives. It is scary to say, God, here's my family. God, here's my dollars. God, here's my career. God, here's my future. God, everything I have, I'm laying before you, and I'm saying, God, how would you want me to use this for your glory? That is incredibly scary to be at the point of of humbly saying, God, I'm yours. What is it you have for me? But I tell you what, (laughs) when we come to that point of laying it down, of surrender, of God, this is your life, that's where the beauty happens. That's where the music is made. That's where lives are transformed. That is where God does some amazing things. In fact, I want to close with a quote. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. If you're not familiar, Salvation Army started in the late 1800s with a desire to meet the needs of the poorest people in London, to meet their physical needs, their emotional needs, and their spiritual needs. Now, despite all the good that Salvation Army does, man, they have faced incredible opposition from uh, the secular world, as well as from other Christians attacking, why would you just focus on meeting those physical needs? What's wrong with you Christians? Yet despite that opposition, William Booth was faithful to what God asked him to do. And Salvation Army that we know of today has become one of the largest humanitarian aid distributors throughout the world. And someone asked William Booth, they said, what is your secret to your success? He paused for a second. Got some tears in his eyes, and this is what he said. He said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all of me. There are men with greater brains, men with greater opportunities, men better than me. But when God put the poor of London on my heart and gave me a vision of what God could do for them, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth. I don't know what God is asking of you today. I don't know what God is asking of you in 2024. I don't know what God is calling you to do. I don't know what God is asking you to make a priority in your life. But I do know this, that when we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, when we lean not on our own understanding, we, when we acknowledge him in all our ways, he will make straight your paths. That when we are surrendered to him, that is where blessing and peace and joy will be found. And there will be greater things than we could ever imagine. When we say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray.